6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. In other words, the angels never had authority over the world. One of them stepped out and usurped it, and he got himself in a lot of trouble. That's still to be all settled. Right? One usurped, but he's being dealt with. His name was Lucifer. The angels ran errands for the Lord. The spirits ministered to him, but they never had authority to rule. That's a key point the writer's making here. In Colossians, he wrote... Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye shall serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. The reward of the inheritance here we're talking about, not salvation in the, in the sense that, of justification. Judgment begins with the believers. That's mentioned several times in, in 1 Peter 4 and also here. So the Son is superior to the angels in His humanity. Now that's bizarre. Sovereignty over the earth is promised to man, not the angels. When God created the earth in Genesis, man was given dominion, not the angels. God gave man dominion over the earth. Psalm 8 emphasizes that. Man lost it through sin to Satan and his angels. The Messiah regained that dominion for man. And so man will be associated with him in ruling. Now there's some objections that the writer anticipates. Paul now is going to address two objections to the fact that Christ is above the angels. That sounds pretty good, but that raises some problems. First, if Christ is above the angels, yet he became a man, which is lower than the angels, how can he still be higher than the angels while he's in the form of a man? That's a, that's a corker, isn't it? Secondly, Problem number two, Christ died. The angels don't die. So if Christ died, how can that make him better than the angels? Those are the objections. How are they going to deal with? Paul's going to demonstrate that it is his humiliation and suffering which is the cause for his exaltation and his glory. His inheritance came about because of his willingness to lower himself, become a man, and subject himself voluntarily, even unto death on man's behalf. Wow. And that his glory goes beyond all these things, far beyond everything that you can imagine. Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 6. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or son of man that thou visitest him? That's Psalm 8. Very famous passage. What is man that thou art mindful of him? The puny man. Why, you know, why give him all this? And the son of man that thou visitest him. This is not talking about Adam, by the way, because Adam was a son of God, not son of Adam. We we're all sons of Adam. Because Adam was a son of God. Paul uses the term the last Adam as a title of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. And now he's still quoting from Psalm 8, verse 5. 
made us a little. This is widely misunderstood. Brachas means short, small, or little, but it can mean it in one of two ways. It can be little of place, like a short distance, a little distance. Or it can be of time, a short time, for a little while. And that's the way it's being used here. Made him for a little while lower than the angels. Okay? Make more sense? It's quoted in Philippians too. That's why it causes a number of people confusion. It's the, it's the, it's the short, it's the time shortness that it's in view here in the Greek. Puny man. See, in the middle of the metacosm, every, the whole cosmos, there is a macrocosm, how big it is, the physical universe, and there is the microcosm, how small can it get? Man is in the middle, right in the middle of this. Both are finite, by the way. That is the incredible discovery of 20th century science. Put man, as far as he can reach, in the middle. And let's make size horizontal. Small to the left, big to the right. You get bigger and bigger and bigger, largeness, you're dealing with astronomy and astrophysics. But you discover, the great discovery of 20th century science is that the universe is not infinite, it's finite. It is finite. That's what gives rise to the Big Bang and all those things. Okay, go, let's go the small way. You would think it could get small, infinitely small. It turns out you can't. There's a point at which it can't get any smaller. That's, it, it, there's a, everything is made up of an indivisible unit. That's why they call it quanta. They're called quanta, quantum physics, subatomic particles. Smallness has a limit. That is staggering its implications. That's why some of the early physicists discovered that committed suicide. They, they, they understood it well enough to realize they couldn't handle it. The entire universe is made up of units that cannot be divided. It's digital. Now, take the atom for an example. We always say in school we have a nucleus of, say, a, a proton, and around it goes an electron. Okay, this is not the scale, obviously. Yeah, right. The nucleus is 10 to the minus 13 centimeters, approximately, in diameter. The orbit of the electron is about 10 to the minus 8, which is a lot, you know, it's five, 10 to the fifth bigger, right? Okay? So the ratio of those two are 100,000 to 1. If you make a nucleus 1 inch, you've got to put the electron 100,000 inches away. Follow me? Okay. So... Now, if you that's linearly, volumetrically, it's 100,000 times 100,000 times 100, three dimensions, right? So it's 100, 10 to the fifth raised to the third power. That's 10 to the 15th. Now, if I, if I told you that there, this podium here is solid, and Mary comes up and says, no, there's nothing here, she's more right than I am by 10 to the 15th to 1. Or put another way, the same ratio as one second to 30 million years. Okay. I'm saying it's equivalent to one second. She's, yes, but you're talking about 30 million year span. It's, it's, more, empty, it's more empty than solid by a rather disturbing ratio. Let's go on. Okay, so is it solid? No. Is it empty space? No. Because it's more, it's more empty than it is solid by that ratio. If I take a line and cut it in half, I can take what I've got left and cut it in half, right? Take what's left and cut it in half, right? And you would think I could do that forever. Whatever I've got left, I could cut in half. You'd think I could at least conceptually do that forever. It turns out I can't. 
It turns out when I get 10 to the minus three, 33 centimeters, that's very, very small. But if I get that small, I can't cut it in half. If I cut it in half or try, it is suddenly everywhere in the universe at the same instant. It loses a property called locality. You've got to be kidding. They lose, at, at the limits, they lose locality. The, there's a, a Planck length of length, time, energy, mass, all have a unit below which it does not exist. It's digital. What's the implication of that? Well, on the macrocosm, in largeness, it's finite. In the microcosm, it's limited. So the total thing is limited. We are, you and I, live in a digital simulation. It's finite, it has finite limits. It's made of indivisible units. Scientific American, in June of 2004, had an article about uh, physics constants. Their conclusion is that our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. No kidding. That's what the Bible has said all along. That the Hebrews 11, and we're going to get into that in Hebrews 11, 1 Corinthians 15, and elsewhere. Let's move on now. Well, one other thing. This is kind of fun. In Ephesians chapter 3, we have an interesting verse. Paul writes that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is that breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you catch that? Breadth, length, depth, height, how many dimensions? Four. And we know today we have, live in four dimensions, three spatial dimensions and one sign. One of those is the Greek word for measuring the length of time. Four dimensions, very contemporary physics. How did Paul know that? Four dimensions, kind of fun. Anyway, we'll move on. One last observation, I love this, because we know we're all looking forward to being resurrected, right? Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We're not going to see a representation of Him. We're going to see Him as He is, meaning we'll enjoy the same dimensionality He does. And His dimensionality is pretty interesting. But that's a case for another day. For thou madest Him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou crownest Him with glory and honor, and didst set Him over the works of thy hands. Adam through sin forfeited his dominion. Did he ever have dominion over the angels? No. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. The last Adam, however, gained dominion over everything. And if we don't forfeit our inheritance, we'll join him as a joint heir in that dominion. Wow. Over the angels? Thou hast put all subjection, all in all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all subjection, all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. That means Christ is not finished yet. Your justification is completed at the cross, it is finished. Is Christ finished? No. He has a task still ahead that's going to take him a thousand years to complete, to put all things under the Father. Not, we see not yet. These things are yet future. The kingdom that's coming, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, is breathtaking in its scope and its commitments. This continues, Psalm 8. We're all quoting this from Psalm 8. Unfinished business remains for Christ to do. And we may, if we don't blow it, be joint heirs with Him. The Romans 20, uh, Revelation 21, 7 and Romans 8, 17 touch on those things. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have the purpose of the whole program. Ready for this? 
But now is Christ risen from the dead and became the first fruits of them that slept? For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. That is until the end of the millennium, gang. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. He's going to deliver up the kingdom to God. It's going to take him a thousand years to have it prepared to do that. And it continues, For he that hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. That, why? That God may be all in all. That's the goal. That's the final big fantastic goal. A thousand years away, the millennium. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Whoops! Taste death for every man. That would seem to deny one of the five basic tenets of Calvinism, limited atonement. The Calvinist, the, the pure Calvinist would say that Christ only died for those that are saved. Well, that sounds pretty good, except that's contrary to the Scripture, that he tasted death for every man, and it's available to every man that will accept it. Death was anticipated all through the Scriptures. He told them again and again and again. The only one that got it were the girls. They heard and understood. They were there at the tomb. But, uh, and, of course, the glory is also spelled out in John 17, Colossians. Continuing verse 10, For it became, for it became him for whom all are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete, if you will, through sufferings. The word perfect there, etelio, which means to carry, to consummate or complete. A completion beyond mere justification. That's justification to put you on first base. Finishing well is the issue. In contrast to Saul, King Saul. Remember he started off great? Blew it. How about Solomon? Started off great. Wrote several books in the Bible. Blew it before the end. And Demas. Started off okay, but Paul had a lot to say about Demas. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This is sanctification. John 17 deals with it. And by the way, it doesn't mean purification. It's not a condition, but it's a position you have in Christ. You've been set aside. It's a process, but you've been set aside in it that you have in Christ. And he's therefore not ashamed to call them brethren. That's a key word when you start studying the sheep and goat judgment in, um, uh, that occurs, one of the first things when the kingdom is set up on the earth, you have this very strange, the more you study it, the more questions it raises about the sheep and the goat. There's three groups, the sheep, the goat, and the brethren. You need to understand what that's all about. Mortal people being judged in and out of hell, whichever way, on the basis of, totally a basis of works, by the way. Really? Yeah, check it out. Anyway, verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of which uh, of the church will I sing praise unto thee. This is a quote from the Old Testament, believe it or not, from Psalm 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation, there's the term, same word in fact, ecclesia, will I praise thee. 
It's incredible. Psalm 22, the first 21 verses describes Christ's humiliation as if it was dictated first person singular hanging on the cross. It includes his seven last words in that, first and last especially. Anyway, go, continue. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. I will put my trust in him. Jesus trusted the Father. The walk of faith is what this is all about. Every day, God has a, finds a different way to ask you the question, ask you the question, do you trust me? Paul points out this is why the Son had to become a man, to, to, to walk our path for, on our behalf, to become our kinsman and walk the walk that we needed but to but couldn't. He walked in our, in, our, in our... The walk of faith. How? In the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 6 is all about. That sin need not reign any longer. A hermeneutical insight, by the way. This is quoted from Isaiah 8. And if you were reading Isaiah 8, it would certainly seem like the writer's talking about the sons of Isaiah. And indeed he is. And yet, here, in this verse... The Holy Spirit of God interprets the reference in Isaiah in a way that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very profound insight. The volume of the book is written of me. Anyone today who attempts to eliminate the Lord Jesus Christ from the prophets is contradicting the interpretation that the Holy Spirit has given in the New Testament right here. So I'll let you run with that one on your own. But I want you to notice all through this thing, the basis is the authority of God's Word, not any apostolic authority or authorship. Verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil. To destroy him that had the power of death, who could that be? Satan. He didn't come the way they had expected, although they should have known by the prophets, but they didn't. He came as flesh and blood to take our place. Christ came as flesh and blood. There's many that tried to argue that. No, he did. The word destroy here, by the way, means to nullify or put to naught, to equalize, render ineffective. To deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The fear of death. The law of God demands death for sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wage of sin is death. It's all through the scripture. Satan was the cause of man's sin in the first place. And even though he's a serper, he can claim that the sinner must die. He had the power the authority to demand that every sinner should pay sin's penalty. Now, on account of this, all men, because all are sinners, were fearful of death and subject to bondage because of sin, to serve it, and thus serve Satan. Verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Jesus didn't become an angel. He became a seed of Abraham. Took upon him the seed of Abraham. Then Isaac, then Jacob, then Judah, David... The throne, not the bloodline, but the throne, came through Solomon. The, but the blood curse in Jeconiah, let the throne continue, but the bloodline didn't. The line went through the second, not the first surviving son of Bathsheba, namely Solomon, the second surviving son of Bathsheba, Nathan. Jude brings that out. That comes down through Mary. So the legal line through Joseph, the bloodline through Mary. Flesh and blood. Jesus came as flesh and blood. And that's detailed all through the Old Testament. His genealogy is encrypted in the Torah in Genesis 38. Uh, Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Yishai, David, five people, 49-letter intervals, their part in chronological order, encrypted in a genealogy in the Torah, books of Moses, long before Joshua, Judges, 
and Samuel, etc. Ruth 4, it's listed. And of course, there's all the Messianic prophecies you're familiar with. The Messiah became a man so that the sanctifier and the sanctified could be united and then he could call them brethren. That's what Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 is all about. By means of death, he rendered Satan's power inoperative as far as believers are concerned. If you're a believer, Satan has no control because Christ paid, paid for your entry ticket. By means of death, he rendered Satan's power inoperative. The fear of death enslaves, and the believer, for, for the believer, death is no longer a punishment, but a means to enter heaven. Going to kill me? Bring it on. I'm ready. The sphere of the Messiah's work was man, not angels. The sphere of the Messiah's work was man, not angels. Verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Ho, ho, we're going to have a handful of chapters. Five through nine, really, all about his high priesthood. If you want to find out about his high priesthood, this is the book that will lay it all out. This is the Leviticus of the New Testament, in a sense. And things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And this is a major topic that will be expanded in later chapters. Reconciliation really should be propitiation, to be more accurate, but we don't have to split those hairs here. We'll get into that later. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He is able to succor. The word succor means, by the way, to come to the aid, to help, assist. Originally meant to run and help, but it's, it means just to help and so forth. Because he suffered being tested, he is able to help those who are tested. Could Christ have sinned in the temptation of, of, of Satan? The answer is absolutely not. If he had failed... It just proved that he wasn't the Son of God. It wasn't Jesus. Well, he wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah could not sin. It's not possible. He was just proving he was the Messiah, but not sinning. Do you see the difference? It's an important difference. As we get further along in Hebrews, we'll be studying the priesthood of God. We'll see that the Lord Jesus Christ is able to help those who are tested. Why? Because he was there first. He, he can say, been there, done that. Jesus could not have succumbed to temptation. He could not have fallen. The answer, of course, is no. When we speak of being tempted to do something wrong, we actually mean is that we have the opportunity to do wrong, and we want to do it. That's what makes it sin. Now, the opportunity was that testing, but the desire to do wrong was sin, and a sinful desire is in itself sin, if you nurse it. The Lord Jesus never had that sinful desire. So his superiority, we've just gone through, uh, just to summarize, his superiority of the angels is salvation to manifest divine grace, to overcome the prince of death, to free the believer from the fear of death, and to help man. Those are the, the gist of verses 10 to 18. Epistle of the Hebrews. Jesus, the new and better believer, we, we, we had that in the, uh, the first seven verses, we'll deal with that. In the next uh, verses, eight and nine will be a new and better covenant, better promises, better sanctuary, and all. we'll go through the tabernacle, temple, all that, and a better sacrifice and better results. Well, we have just been through the God-man, better angels. Now, next time we take chapter 3, the apostles, we've had all this, the last few chapters, better than the angels. Now we're going to shift to the next major pillar of Judaism. After angels, got Moses. Well, you're not going to attack Moses, are you? No. We're going to show that Christ was a superior to Moses. And he will do that. So next time, I want you to read chapter 3. And we go on to the second pillar, if you will, of Judaism, Moses. And I have a question for you, to, and you can check out Numbers 12, 
where Moses' authority is challenged rather dramatically and reinforced. What lessons from Israel's failure in the wilderness are there for us? We have this, you know, these 38 years in the wilderness wandering around from one, event, one adventure to another. What are the lessons there for us? Paul tells us in the New Testament, those lessons are for us. What are they? What, do we, what, what, what does that all mean for us? And can our inheritance be forfeited? That's really the lurking problem. We'll discover that inheritance can be lost in the Old Testament and can also be lost in the New. We'll give you examples. And then when we get to the, uh, in, chapter, from chapter, in chapter 3, we'll encounter the second of the five warnings in the book of, uh, of uh, uh, Hebrews. It'll overflow a little bit in the chapter 4. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this incredible book of Hebrews. We thank you for, for how it reveals our coming king, how it reveals the extremes he went to on our behalf. And it gives us at least a glimmer of the inheritance that you've set aside for us. We thank you, Father, for the warnings that we might be diligent, that we might not neglect this incredible opportunity that you put before us. We pray, Father, that through your word and through your Holy Spirit, you would help each of us to apprehend what it is that lies ahead for us and what it is you would have of each of us in the days that remain. That we each might grow in grace the knowledge of our King, but that we also might be more effective stewards of the resources you've placed at our disposal, the opportunities. We do pray, Father, that we might indeed be more pleasing in thy sight as we seek to finish well, not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit, Father. Help us to discern what you would have of us as we commit ourselves without any reservations into your hands in the name of our high priest our lord and savior jesus christ amen you've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of koinonia house and koinonia institute today's bible teacher was chuck missler teaching through the book of hebrews for a complete listing of resources available please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>